Next Sunday is obviously October 31st, a day that we Protestants remember as Reformation Day. On October 31st, 1517, Martin Luther hammered his 95 theses on the door of the church in Wittenberg, Germany. And historians recognize Luther's action as the launching point of the Reformation, the movement of God that recovered the true gospel and a commitment to the sufficiency and authority of the scripture alone. But friends, a more decisive event in Luther's life took place nearly four years later on April 18th, 1521. Luther was asked to appear before the Holy Roman Emperor, the Spaniard Charles V at the Imperial Parliament that had been called to meet at Worms, which was situated on the, on the Upper Rhine in Germany, about 40 miles south of Frankfurt. At this Diet of Worms were... Representatives of the Roman Catholic Church, Spanish troops, the German political elite, and the emperor himself. And this, this parliament asked Luther two questions. Do you acknowledge having written these 20 books lying here? And number two, are you prepared to retract them as a whole or in part? Luther was shocked. He was expecting debate, not an ultimatum. And he responded in a barely audible voice. The books are all mine, and I have written more. As to the second question about retracting what he had written, Luther responded, this touches God and his word. This affects the salvation of souls. Of this, Christ said, he who denies me before men, him will I deny before my father. To say too little or too much would be dangerous. I beg you, give me time to think it over. They gave him 24 hours. When Luther appeared before the Diet of Worms the next day, he said these famous words. If then I'm not convinced by the testimony of scriptures or by clear rational arguments, for I do not believe in the, in the Pope or in councils alone, since it has been established that they all have often erred and contradicted each other. I am bound by the Bible text that I quoted. And as long as my conscience is captive to the word of God, I, I cannot nor do I want to retract anything when things become doubtful. Salvation will be threatened if you go against your conscience. May God help me. Amen. Luther, of course, was excommunicated by the Catholic Church and retreated into exile to protect himself from, from being killed. But, but friends, his brave stand at Worms, face to face with a fiery death, sealed the break with Rome for those of us who came to be called Protestants. It also decisively determined that the movement following in his train would not be shaped by the authority of the church, but by the authority of the scripture. In a real sense, we are here today because of God's grace through Martin Luther at the Diet of Worms. Friends, Luther's story is a, is a poignant reminder that throughout the history of Christ's church, the gospel of the kingdom has advanced through persecution. The way that the gospel has moved forward has been, has been upon the backs of the suffering. But praise God, because the Lord stands behind his people who testify to him in the face of such danger, we have no need to fear. This is what Jesus teaches his disciples today in our passage in Matthew 10. So please turn your Bibles uh, with me to Matthew chapter 10. It's on page 815 of the Bible underneath your seat. 
Friends, this week's text, verses 16 to 33 of Matthew 10, follows on the heels of of Jesus sending his his 12 disciples out on a short-term mission throughout Galilee to announce that the king had come. Jesus' disciples were the first installment of workers that the Lord of the harvest sent into the harvest fields to proclaim the gospel. In our text this morning, Jesus continues his, his instructions to his disciples about their mission, but he also is going to widen out to more of a broad angle lens. He not only instructs them about their immediate short-term mission, but also about the future. He gives them a sneak peek about what life will look like for us, his church, after he's gone. Let's read together these, instruction, these instructions for a dangerous mission, starting in verse 16. Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you were to speak or what you were to say, for what you were to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. Brother will deliver brother over to death and and the father his child. And children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the son of man comes. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher, and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of the household? So have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed, or hidden that will not be made known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whispered proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will acknowledge before my father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. Friends, I think the main idea of this passage of Matthew's gospel is this. The gospel of the kingdom advances through persecution. So don't be afraid when persecution comes. There's a lot here in this text. It's a bit of a dense text, but the main point is really simple. The gospel of the kingdom advances through persecution, so don't be afraid when it comes. Two main points, dividing up that big main point. The gospel of the kingdom advances through persecution. Don't be afraid when persecution comes. Now, I've given you lots of different sub-points in your bulletin this week. That's abnormal for me. Um, you'll forgive me if I don't reference them much. They're just there as little hooks for you to grab onto because of how dense this text is. I hope that it's helpful, not hurtful. 
Friends, given the, the relative comfort and lack of fierce persecutions that we Christians enjoy here in the United States, I think it would be tempting to think that this text is only for Christians back then, right? Or only for Christians over there in another place. But that would be a mistake. The Lord teaches us that wherever his gospel goes, Christians can expect mistreatment. While suffering for the sake of his name may not always be our experience, we should not be surprised when it comes. Let's look at this first point. The gospel of the kingdom advances through persecution. See that in verse 16 to 25. In verse 16, Jesus reminds his disciples right off the bat that he is sending them on what will be a mission that is very dangerous. It's not easy. Remember that he had just told them in verses 13 to 15 that, that some would not accept them or their kingdom message. But now Jesus seems to want them to understand more of the shape of this rejection. It's not only that people would refuse to hear them, but that refusal would often spill over into a proactive persecution of them. Jesus says that he's sending his disciples out as, as sheep in the midst of wolves. And there's, no, there's no pretense of safety, is there? The threat is real, and it is as out in the open as a pack of wolves surrounding a vulnerable sheep. But just because his disciples are vulnerable doesn't mean that they should be gullible or helpless. So Jesus commands them to be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. We know snakes in Arizona, right? Snakes are cunning, and they're known for their shrewdness. So as Jesus' disciples go out, he wants them to have their wits about them, to use wisdom for the sake of the gospel. But lest they get the wrong impression, impression that they're to be the aggressor, to use their shrewdness to harm their opponents, Jesus balances the image with the harmlessness of a dove. Jesus' followers should ornament and commend the gospel by the way that we carry ourselves and the way that we live our lives. In other words, friends, when confronted with gospel opposition, don't check your mind at the door, but don't check your Christian life there either. Commend the gospel. And Jesus continues this idea in verse 17 when he tells his disciples to beware of men. He tips them off that there's a certain type of people that they should particularly be circumspect about. Well, obviously, these men are the wolves from verse 16. These are the enemies of King Jesus and his messengers. Jesus wants us to take precaution against those who would try to harm us. Friends, here's how we know that Jesus' instruction here in these verses encompasses more than just, his, just their short-term mission in Galilee. Because look, not only does he warn them about enemies among the Jews who would persecute them by delivering them over to authorities and then flogging them in the synagogues, clearly a Jewish context. He also warns them about the Gentile response, that it would be no better. In fact, among the Gentiles, the opposition, the opposition wouldn't remain at the local level, but it would extend to governors and kings. Remember, Jesus had instructed his disciples not to go to the Gentiles on their first mission. Do you remember that? So his warning here about the Gentile response indicates that he's pre preparing them for a future suffering. The rejection of the Jews in Galilee in their first mission is just the prototype of a hostility that all of us should expect as we faithfully hold forth the gospel. Friends, persecution is the clash of two kingdoms. 
It's what happens when the kingdom of God invades the kingdom of this world. You have two competing sets of truth claims. You have competing priorities and allegiances. The gospel that, that God's reign through Christ the King extends over every human kingdom and over every other supposed God is not a message aimed to win a popularity contest. It cuts right across the grain of who people and even who governments and societies and their self-worship and idolatry conceive themselves to be. Notice from verse 18, what happens when Jesus' disciples are dragged before governors and kings? Their, their very lives threatened for the sake of Christ's name. The text says they bear witness before them. They will stand before the authorities on account of their willingness to preach the gospel boldly. And in that moment, they will have yet another opportunity to preach that very message in the halls of power. After all, Jesus says in verse 18 that this type of mistreatment is for my sake. Did you see that? He'll repeat that idea in verse 22. You will be hated by all for my name's sake. It's evident that Jesus' followers suffer because of him. We believe Jesus and his gospel to be so glorious, so beautiful, so true, that we're willing to sacrifice everything to be publicly identified with him and to make him known. Friends, we certainly saw this to be true in the book of Acts, right? When the apostles stood before governors and kings, they bore witness not merely about their life's testimony of commitment to the gospel, but by proclaiming the message of a crucified and risen king who deserves even these authorities' exclusive allegiance and worship. Peter and John, as we read this morning, proclaimed Christ crucified to the Jewish council in Acts 4 and again in Acts 5. In the following years, the Apostle Paul, formerly a persecutor of these very Christians of the Church of Jesus Christ, would boldly preach the unsearchable riches of Christ to the extent that he would endure incalculable suffering from both Jews and Gentiles. Paul described in 2 Corinthians 11, countless floggings by Jewish authorities, five times the maximum amount of 39 lashes. Paul was eventually dragged before the Gentile Roman governor Felix and his successor Festus. And he even appeared before the Jewish puppet king Agrippa, where he would give bold testimony to the glory of King Jesus. Jesus' words came true in the ministries of the, of the apostles, and they have been fulfilled countless times throughout the history of his church. Friends, it's no wonder, is it, that from this prominent platform in front of kings, that the gospel found its way into the, to the consciousness of the people at large. That's what Jesus says will happen in verse 18. There is in persecution a great and glorious paradox. Those who persecute believers seek to shut them down and stifle their message. But such persecution serves to spread the gospel, not to stop it. It sounds pretty terrifying, though, doesn't it? Pretty intimidating. But look at Jesus' encouragement to his disciples in verse 19 and 20. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you, you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. 
the other day, a construction company in our neighborhood blasted granite just a few hundred yards away from our home. And the blast was so strong, it felt like an earthquake, right? Happening inside our house. And Canaan, my youngest, uh, nearly two, came running toward me in terror uh, and grabbed onto my leg. And after the blast stopped, I said, Canaan, was that scary? He said, uh-huh. <laughs> and there's no question, friends, that Christians throughout the ages who stand before the powers that be for the sake of Christ's name would say the same thing. Friends, is, is that scary? Uh-huh. Yeah, it's terrifying. But look who it is that promises to be by our side in those moments. It is the Lord God. He promises to back his disciples with spirit-given words and a spirit-granted manner in which to speak. God the Father will send God the Spirit to testify of God the Son. Beloved, the triune God has a stake in the persecution of his people. Earlier we read from from Acts 4, where the authorities, and they were just astonished that uneducated men could testify so powerfully and eloquently before them. Well, these powerful men unknowingly had a front row seat to the Spirit of God doing exactly what Jesus said he would do. Peter, filled with the Spirit, preached to them. How else can you explain what happened? Friends, we've seen Jesus' words prove themselves to be true countless times in church history. We have historical record of Christians in the moment of their greatest peril before the powers that be, speaking with remarkable courage and eloquence and even a prophetic voice. Just two examples from the Reformation or the, the pre-Reformation. Think of William Tyndale, strangled to death and then burned at the stake in England after years of working to get the scriptures in the, into the common vernacular for the people, not just in Latin, for the clergy. Tyndale's final words were reportedly, Lord, open the king of England's eyes. Within four years, four English translations of the Bible were published in England, including Henry VIII's official great Bible, all of them based on William Tyndale's work. Nineteen years later, in 1555, also in England, Nicholas Ridley and Hugh Latimer were tied back to back at the stake, Sentenced for rejecting papal authority in the Roman Mass. Before the executioner lit the flame, Latimer famously said to Ridley, Be of good comfort, Mr. Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day light a candle by God's grace in England, as I trust never shall be put out. Beloved, these are just two of countless examples of God holding his end of the deal in this moment of his, his followers' greatest needs in the fires of persecution. Christians who have lived through such experiences marvel at what came out of their mouth in these moments. And while none of us would ever wish to be in such a scenario, we can be confident that if we ever are, God has our back. He will attend our moment of need with his Spirit's power. In verse 21, Jesus says that hostility toward his messengers won't just be from the outside or from the governing powers, but from within our own families. Brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. Friends, we see in these family relationships a, a poignant and painful microcosm of what is true more broadly in the world. 
The gospel of the kingdom divides between people who embrace Jesus by faith and those who do not. When the gospel enters a family, it reveals where ultimate allegiance lies. Often family members feel betrayed and feel disrespected when a sibling or a parent or a child becomes a Christian and shows themselves not to be fundamentally loyal to the family or to the family's religion, but to Jesus. This type of scenario is especially acute, isn't it, in a shame-honor society where becoming a Christian is viewed as bringing dishonor upon the entire family. But isn't it ironic that in these scenarios Jesus describes, it's not the convert who betrays the family, but the unbelieving family member whose hearts are so dark that they're willing to have their own family member killed or mistreated on account of their faith in Jesus Christ. Friends, Jesus does not want you to be surprised when your unbelieving family members whom you love dearly turn against you. And he wants you to understand that all human loves, even these that are most precious to us, must be subservient to our love for him. Beloved, this type of hatred will bring about a temptation for all believers to throw in the towel, right? To cave to the pressure, to mute our witness and to migrate back to a place of safety and security and comfort. And so what is needed, according to verse 22, is endurance to the end. Notice what, what hinges upon this endurance of faith. Final salvation. Those who endure to the end will be saved. The New Testament speaks of a, of a past, present, and future dimension to our salvation. We have been saved at the moment of our conversion. We are currently being saved through the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. And one day we will be saved on the last day at the final judgment. We will be saved fully and finally on that day. Jesus clearly states here that it doesn't matter ultimately how we start, friends. It matters how we finish. He is concerned with the endurance of faith to the end. The faith that's put through the refiner's fire and comes out on the other side, purified and strengthened like gold. Jesus will have none of an easy believism or the quote-unquote free grace theology where it doesn't matter how you live your life after your initial profession of faith. Fruit of repentance has nothing to do with it. Friends, if you read an author teaching that, close the book. Deposited in the trash can, right? If you're following someone on YouTube who's preaching that, unsubscribe and never watch them again. That is not right. It doesn't ultimately matter where you, whether you prayed the sinner's prayer or if you walked an aisle or even if you were baptized and are a member of a church. If those things are decoupled from an enduring faith in Jesus, they are vacuous. They are empty. They hold no eternal weight. Just read through the book of Hebrews. The author repeatedly exhorts us that what is needed for salvation is the perseverance of faith, even amidst suffering. Just listen to Hebrews 10, 32 to 36. I think it's likely that the author of Hebrews is reflecting on these words of the Lord Jesus in the midst of persecution. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. Sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, 
And you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. Friends, if you abandon your faith because of external pressure, you abandon your hope of eternal reward. But the beautiful gospel truth in, in our suffering as Christians is, is not just that we are to grit our teeth, you know, and just kind of power through. But the reason that we can keep clinging to God's promises is that he is at work in us, even through our suffering. Through our suffering, he's fitting us for heaven. All suffering in the path of obedience to Jesus prepares us for an eternal weight of glory beyond comparison, Paul says. Our affliction on earth trains our hearts to prize heaven's joys. And besides, what is the worst possible outcome of persecution? Death. For the Christian, death isn't the end of the line, but the gateway to glory and a full reward. Jesus just keeps kind of instructing his disciples in this machine gun-like fashion, doesn't he? In verse 23, he circles back to the need for wisdom and flexibility. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. Friends, suffering is not to be sought out, right, or, or glorified as some sort of superior holiness, like those who suffer on the Lord's varsity team, right? And then there's the rest of us who hope to make the freshman squad, right? No. In fact, not only should we not seek suffering out, there's often a gospel justification to relocating to avoid it, Jesus says. Jesus does not want his disciples or us to continually to cast the pearl of the gospel before swine who are rejecting the message in a hardened way when there are people receptive to our message in other places. This seems to be Jesus' thinking for his instruction to the disciples to keep moving. Now notice how he motivates them. He says, keep moving, move on to another town. He says, you're not going to have time to go through the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. Friends, you will find few more perplexing and debated phrases in the entire New Testament. What does that mean? Some think that in light of Jesus' previous statement about endurance to the end, he's talking about his second coming. When the Son of Man comes at the end of the age. But if that were true, the first part of verse 23 wouldn't make a lot of sense. Others say that Jesus simply meant that his disciples won't make it to all the towns before he comes to them at the end of their short-term mission in Galilee. Still others that he is referring to a, a coming in judgment against the Jews in 70 AD when Rome sacked Jerusalem and destroyed the temple. And that, that may be a very possible interpretation because Jesus speaks of the destruction of Jerusalem as a preview of the final judgment later even recorded in Matthew's gospel. But remember, the little theological deep dive, sorry, okay? I want you to understand, help at least think along with the text, okay? Remember that time, really almost any time Jesus uses the term the Son of Man. He's pulling from where? He's pulling from Daniel 7, where the exalted Son of Man, the universal King, 
came. That's what Daniel says. He came to the Ancient of Days, riding on the clouds of heaven, and received from this, this figure, the Ancient of Days, the Lord, Yahweh, dominion and glory and a kingdom. So when Jesus says, you're not going to have time to go throughout all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes, he's close to directly quoting Daniel 7.13. The Son of Man came before the Son of Man comes. So, right now, my position <laughs> and what I think Matthew is saying, what Jesus is saying, is that he is talking about a Daniel 7 authority given to him by virtue of his resurrection and ascension. That's what he means before the Son of Man comes. It's when he comes in his full power. Think about it. In Matthew 28, when Jesus expanded on the disciples' mission from Israel to the whole world, he commissioned them based on what? All authority has been given to me on, in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go into all the world and make disciples. That's Daniel 7 type authority. So what I think Jesus is saying is when people persecute you, keep moving because you're not going to have time to get to all the towns of Israel by the time the Son of Man's universal kingship is established when he comes. When that happens, I'm going to send you out not only to the towns of Israel, but to the entire world. In verse 24, Jesus says explicitly what he's implied all along. Don't be surprised when you suffer. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It's enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? Friends, in other words, if, if God has called you as a disciple of Christ, if by grace you're his servant, don't be, don't be surprised. In fact, expect to be treated no better than your master was. If they call Jesus the Messiah, the great bridegroom of the bride, Beelzebul, which seems to be a crass name for Satan, how much more will they malign those who are part of Jesus' very household? If they blaspheme the Lord of glory, then certainly we shouldn't be surprised that when we follow, who follow him suffer in behalf of his name. In fact, I would say that we should be surprised when we don't suffer like that. Friends, praise God that, that Jesus did not retreat from that type of persecution. In order to save us, think about it, Jesus was brought before the, the Jewish councils. He was brought before the Roman governor. He was betrayed by his friend, who were in essence his family, and then flogged by the authorities. He willingly let himself be delivered to death for our sake. Peter would later write, For to this you have been called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. Non-Christian friends, if you're here without Jesus, I, I hope you'll see in, in, in we Christians' willingness to suffer and even die for Christ's sake, something of the worthiness of Jesus Christ. We care so much that his name is made known and worshiped among the nations that we are willing to stake our lives on it. We're willing to suffer the loss of our reputation for the sake of his. And I pray that 
That as you think about this, you'll recognize in Christians' willingness to endure persecution a reflection. That you'll see in this a reflection of Christ's love for you. Ultimately, our motivation for suffering is not just the glory of Jesus, but compassion for sinners. We want people like you to encounter Jesus and to embrace the gospel because your eternal plight depends on it. We care deeply enough for you to tell the truth. Without Christ, you'll perish in your sins and be eternally separated from from God. That's what we all deserve. But in staggering love, God sent his son, Jesus, to live the life that we should have lived, to die the death that we deserved, and then to rise powerfully from the dead on the third day. God on that third day vindicated his son, Jesus, He declared him to be righteous and free from the penalty of death so that if you today turn from your sin and trust in Jesus, you too will be declared the same, righteous because of Jesus and free from the penalty of death. God will transform your life to live with a type of Christ-exalting commitment that you see reflected here in Jesus' instruction to his disciples. And you'll realize that along with us, Jesus is worth it. Number two, don't be afraid when persecution comes. I think in these next verses, verses 26 to 33, Jesus gives us sort of a a theology of persecution. That's what he's doing. He's deepening the roots of our faith so that we, we might not be upended by suffering or on behalf of his name. You know, friends, we can, learn, we can learn some of this as we're going through persecution, but how much better to learn it beforehand so that we're prepared to build a firm foundation now so we don't topple over when, when the fires of persecution come. I think Jesus' main point in verses 26 to 33 is really hard to miss, okay? You don't have to, to squint your eyes to see it. In verse 26, he says... So have no fear of them. In verse 28, he says, don't fear those who kill the body. In verse 31, he says, fear not. In the face of mounting pressure and threat, we must not be governed by our fear. Now, you might read this section and think, man, is is what Jesus asking us to do here like really unreasonable? I mean, how could you not be afraid in moments of hostility against your life? I don't think Jesus is warning us against certain emotions, friends. It's not as if we're sinning when a surge of terror shoots through our hearts in moments of danger. Rather, Jesus is not talking about so much an emotion as a spiritual response that affects the way that we live. Primarily, he's concerned that our instinct is not towards self-protection to the point that we jettison faithfulness to him. He doesn't want our proclamation of the gospel to be a casualty of our fearfulness. In these verses, Jesus gives us four reasons why we must not be fearful. Here's four tools, friends, to put in your gospel toolbox, okay? Your tool belt to get out at the right time. The first reason not to be fearful is that while the truth may be obscured now, it will emerge one day. 
Jesus says in verse 26, For nothing is covered that will not be revealed, or hidden that will not be made known. Well, Jesus is pointing us toward the last day, the future judgment of God, when what is truly true will emerge from the shadows as truly true. When those who are persecuted will be vindicated, and those who persecute will be held accountable by the judge. Friends, I don't know if we think about this day enough. Jesus says it's setting our eyes on the future judgment that will bolster our confidence in the present. This day, this great day of judgment will bring about the greatest reversal of outcomes in world history. Every wrong will be made right. God's suffering and mistreated people, even the martyrs who died out of love for Christ, will be vindicated publicly because King Jesus will be vindicated publicly in triumph. And those who sought to harm us will be put to open shame. For you Lord of the Rings fans, think of the Battle of Helm's Deep here, okay? When 10,000 orcs and the evil forces of Saruman siege the much smaller army of, of Theoden and the Fellowship of the Ring. As the battle raged, they, they began to lose faith that, that Gandalf would really come back as he said he would. But when dawn appeared in the east, so did Gandalf, bringing with him 7,000 troops, right, to ensure the victory. Friends, if, if Theoden had a, an assurance deep in his soul that, that Gandalf would indeed come, and that victory was, it may be delayed for a little bit, but it was only a matter of time, how different would his outlook have been when the, the armies of Sauron seemed to have the upper hand? Well, it would have made all the difference, right? Because he would have known the outcome. The outcome, as we sang this morning, we know the outcome is secure. Brothers and sisters, we know the end of the story. King Jesus will triumph. On the day he returns, the gospel will be publicized in front of the entire world as real and true and good. So we must not fear to proclaim it boldly and publicly today. That's Jesus' point in verse 27. All that he told his disciples privately during his earthly ministry, they are now to proclaim out in the open, shouted from the housetops, as it were. It's to be in full view in broad daylight. Friends, I think it's evident by now that for Christians here in the secularized West, persecution will not likely come in the form of radical, in, in radical violence or oppression that way, at least not yet. It's going to come in the name of tolerance. Christians are going to already being framed as bigots because of biblical conviction. Already in certain countries, making truth claims against certain sins has been labeled as hate speech and liable to imprisonment. Christians are castigated as, as at best old-fashioned and, and at worst working against the good of a tolerant society. We're viewed as being on the wrong side of history. One of the enemy's more insidious lies that's taken hold in our culture is that love equals affirmation and that tolerance equals approval. Friends, that cannot be further from the truth. We respect and treat with decency all those created in God's image. And it's that very image of God in all people that we understand to shape their identity, 
not their sexuality or even their gender or their conception of their gender. Our love for all people is shaped by the truth of God's word, not apart from it. And if we cease to stand on truth, we cease to love. So we cannot call evil good out of fear of reprisal. So I think Jesus's words to us should encourage us in light of this cultural moment. What matters is not being seen publicly as on the right side of history now, but as being seen on the right side of history then. Friends, if we're honest, we've known little of fierce persecution in our lifetime here in the United States. What a gracious freedom the Lord has given us here. In many ways, it's unparalleled in the history of the world where religious freedom and biblical morality are, are kind of baked into the founding documents and laws of the land. But if that freedom begins to shrink and Christians are pushed to the margins of society, it would be good for us to remember. It would do our hearts good, our souls good, to remember that while that may be a new normal in America, it is not a new normal for the kingdom of God. This is who we are. We are people of the cross. Yes, by all means, let's work for justice and righteousness in the public square. I think this is part of the shrewdness that Jesus commends for his followers. But if the outcomes of those efforts aren't what we want them to be in the political and social realm, let's not pine after a public vindication in the United States of America as if paradise could be found here. God's kingdom promises aren't fulfilled by a greater America, but by a suffering and resurrected king who will one day return to set all things right. In verse 28, Jesus gives the second reason that we ought not to be afraid of those who might harm us for Jesus' sake. Look at that. He says, there's, there's someone greater to fear. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Jesus very clearly teaches here that humans aren't just a body, not just a shell, okay, but the wedding of body and soul. When the body dies, the soul does not. One day, body and soul will be resurrected and reunited to live somewhere forever. So why would we fear those who can only take from us our earthly life? Ought we not to fear the one with the power to give or withhold eternal life? Friends, Jesus isn't talking about Satan here. We're never told to fear Satan, ever. And he's never said to have that type of authority. Rather, Jesus is talking about the Father. He is the one with the authority to consign someone to hell. An existence so fully detached from him, the giver and source of life, that it's described as destruction. It's the destruction of all that is good and rich and meaningful. Friends, what do you regard supremely in your heart? What or who? Who or what do you orient your life around? Whose opinion matters most to you? If you're honest, whose approval could you simply not live without? This ultimate regard is what Jesus means by commanding us to fear the Lord. We honor him in our hearts. And Jesus' point seems to be that the fear of God in our hearts swallows up lesser fears. 
It's the fear of the Lord that will evaporate the fear of man in your heart. As we read this morning in, in Psalm 27, if, if we fear the Lord, if we have Him, who then else is left for us to fear? But if you struggle with, with people-pleasing, or as the Bible calls it, man-fearing, you need to hear the words of Jesus this morning. If you struggle with patterns of codependency and insecurity of worrying all the time what others think of you, friend, I'm concerned that you're not prepared to suffer well for Jesus' sake if that moment comes. The solution to the fear of man isn't a higher self-esteem. Growing a higher opinion of yourself will only serve to feed the pride and self-focus that fuels your fear of man, okay? <laughs> That's a vicious cycle. No, it's not you who needs to grow in your mind. It's God who needs to grow in your mind. You need to think more highly of him. The fear of man is what happens when, when people are big and God is small, not vice versa. When we estimate more highly the creature rather than the creator. But when the Lord God becomes most central to us and most important, other fears subside. Friends, in a sense, this is, this is the driving force behind our worship gatherings. We want our services here at Redeeming Grace Church to cultivate and to grow and to evidence a big view of God, right? We want the songs that we sing and the scriptures we read and the prayers that we pray, the sermons we preach, to reinforce the fact that it's, it's God who we ought to fear. And we really are nothing in light of that. We want our services to be warm, but we don't want them to be flippant. We want them to be joyful, but not bouncy. We want them to be enthusiastic, but filled with an earnestness of who God is and how we ought to respond to him in love-filled fear. Friends, if you need some help in, in cultivating the right fear of the Lord and away from the fear of man, let me just commend two books to you. Number one, Ed Welch's When People Are Big and God Is Small. That's where I just got that phrase from. Excellent resource. Overcoming Peer Pressure, Codependency, and the Fear of Man by Ed Welch. Really helpful resource. Also, a newer resource by Michael Reeves. Rejoice and Tremble. The Surprising Good News of the Fear of the Lord. I'm going through this book right now. It is phenomenal. I highly commend it to understand what the fear of the Lord truly is. And you can find both of these resources on our online bookstore, rgcaz.org slash bookstore. Teenagers, let me talk to you for a second. In a sense, I think that it's perhaps more important for you guys as teens to cultivate a fear of the Lord at a young age than maybe it even was for your parents. Especially those of you in public schools. Things that were only spoken of in private in your parents' day are now celebrated in public in yours. Entertainment and social media have so influenced your generation that being one or more of the LGBTQ categories is not just viewed as acceptable, but as, as virtuous, almost like a badge of honor. So it wouldn't surprise me at all if you're put in really an impossible position for a young person to be put in, having to choose between affirming your friend's lifestyle or risk losing your friends. Let me just assure you, no amount of peer pressure or potential hurt from severed relationships can stack up to the privilege of living for Jesus and honoring him with your life. 
You'll never regret making choices that glorify the Lord, ever. You just won't do it. You know, it's hard to have as a young person a long game view of things. But that's really what you need to ask the Lord to give you. The spiritual maturity to send, see beyond temporary loss to what you gain in eternity. I pray the Lord would give you that maturity. It's so much better to fear God than men. Jesus' third reason for not being overcome by the fear of persecution is just this beautiful balance, isn't it, in verse 28? In verses 29 to 31, he says, we're not only to fear the Lord, but we're to trust his providential care. The one who can destroy body and soul in hell watches over the smallest and most insignificant bird. <laughs> if God so watches the sparrows that I know he watches me. If his providential care is so all-encompassing, if he's so sovereign as to know and even ordain when the sparrows fall, then nothing that happens to us flies outside his providential care. He is sovereign and his purposes are always gracious and wise. There's no evil that overtakes us that surprises the Lord or frustrates his purpose. Likewise, he knows with like precision, like accuracy, the most insignificant details about us, like how many hairs we have, right? For some of us more than others, right? It's not just these life and death matters that capture God's attention, but the most minute details of our lives. And if he knows with intimacy these minute details, then how much more intimately acquainted is he, is he with the, those big things in our lives, the things that keep us up at night? things that cause us to fret and scare us. Beloved, fear not. You are of more value than many sparrows. You have the Father's full attention. You can trust in His sovereign and wise care. Jesus' last reason not to fear is really just kind of a summary wrap-up of His teaching in really the entire section. Look at verse 32. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. Friends, what Jesus says here is astonishing. He says that people's response to him will make the difference as to how God treats them on judgment day. That he is the one who represents us before the Lord. If we were to get to the Father, we will only do so in Jesus' name. Friends, only one who shares divinity with the Father could say this, could legitimately make such a claim. In the face of such opposition, followers of Jesus are faced with a choice. Will we publicly identify with him? That's what it means to acknowledge him. Or will our life and words demonstrate that we deny him? Verse 33 should sober us. Whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. This takes us right back to verse 28 with God's authority to destroy both body and soul in hell. There's a court of approval infinitely higher than any human court. And the verdict delivered in that court will mirror whether or not we have acknowledged or denied the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, perhaps you can think back to events in your life 
Maybe images are kind of flooding your heart and, and mind right now, and it's just causing you, your heart to sink and your head to hang in shame because you remember times that you wilted in the face of, fresh, of pressure, right? Well, friends, Peter's denial of Jesus, I mean, Peter denied him three times. It's written about in, in the Gospels, right? There's been no more publicized instance of denial, I don't think, than the Apostle Peter his denial of Jesus and then his subsequent repentance help us to understand that Jesus here isn't talking about it like an isolated lapse in judgment. He's talking about the settled disposition of our hearts. It's about final or settled denial or acknowledgement. What will you do with Jesus? Every time we gather as members of Redeeming Grace Church, you know what we're doing here together this morning? We are publicly demonstrating our common confession and our common acknowledgement of Jesus Christ. For all the world to see, anyone who wants to come in, this is what we're going to confess together. Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus has ordained the waters of baptism to be the initial step of publicly acknowledging him. And then, the, you know, it's kind of the door to fellowship with all of us who have done the same. And then as we take the Lord's Supper each month, we preserve and we reaffirm one another's confession of Jesus Christ and we help each other to keep enduring in the faith. Let me close with the words of Paul. The Apostle Paul in 2 Timothy chapter 2. He says, if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Let's pray. Father, in many ways, this is a hard text. It's a hard text to grapple with. And really, it's a hard text because there's just a lot there. And Father, sometimes it almost overwhelms our hearts at, at what is expected of us. But Father, we, we trust that all that you ordain for us, you will give us grace and provision by your spirit and through the Lord Jesus in the gospel to encounter with faithfulness. But we trust that in our moment of need, you'll be there for us. And so Father, help our hearts not to fear as we look out and as we see maybe even the direction things are going in this world, or we feel certain pressures at work, or we're dealing with loved ones who are even maybe maligning us and looking at us with sideways glances because of who we are as Christians. Oh, Father, give us grace and winsomeness and effectiveness to proclaim the gospel of Jesus in a worthy manner. Oh, Father, help us not to wilt. Help us not to wilt under the pressure that this type of persecution brings. Oh, Father, help us to be ready. Help us not to be surprised. I, I pray that we as a church would help each other in this, in this uh, task. Lord, that we're here for each other. When the, one of us suffers, we all suffer. Just as when one of us rejoices, we all rejoice. We thank you for this. In Jesus' name, amen.